Okay, if you can find your seats and turn to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus 25, we'll be starting in verse 10 this morning. If you would please stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the side sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be ta- taken from it, and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end of one piece of, or of one piece with the mercy seat. Shall you make the cherub them on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their face, face is one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall their faces, faces of the cherubim beam, be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put my, the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Let's pray. Dear God, our Lord, our Father, God, we pray this morning, Lord, I pray that you are with us, Lord, as we go through, uh, again, as I've said a number of times, a portion of scripture that is, is unfamiliar to most of us, Lord, as new Testament believers, Lord, as Westerners, Lord, I pray, Lord, as we walk through these details that you gave to Moses that the the tabernacle was to have, Lord, um, that you would open up our minds to the symbolism, Lord, that the, the Spirit would speak to us, Lord, about what you were pointing the Israelites to, uh, Lord, what you were teaching the Israelites with all these details within the tabernacle, Lord. And so, God, I pray that we would understand that, Lord, that we would worship you, um, God, for your grace and mercy, Lord, and uh, God, I pray that you would just be with us. Uh, God, speak through this passage this morning in your son's name. Amen. May be seated. We're starting a, a sermon series on the tabernacle. If you remember last week, we went kind of through an outline of the second half of the book of Exodus. Exodus 25 through 31 and Exodus 35 through 40 is all about the tabernacle. Exodus 25 through 31 are the instructions. Exodus 35 through 40 is the building, a detailed account of the building of the tabernacle. And, and these two passages are almost identical to each other. Therefore, we're going to kind of walk through uh, the instructions uh, of the tabernacle and uh, preach through both of these passages. And we're going to end with those three important chapters of Exodus, meaning... There is a light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to getting through the book of Exodus. We are uh, heading towards the end. Those three chapters will be the high point of the book of Exodus. And uh, uh, until we get there, we're going to be in the tabernacle. Today we're in Exodus chapter 25, which is a a detailed uh, description of the furniture, at least three items of furniture within the tabernacle. The first item is the Ark of the Covenant, and we just read about that. We are going to look at the table for bread and the golden lampstand. We're going to look at all three today. I'm going to preach through the entire chapter, chapter 25. Um, uh, the three items that are in the, the tabernacle, uh, that's what we're going to be doing today. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, what I read this morning, is the most important item within the tabernacle. So, it's talked about first in Exodus 25, chapter or verses 1 through 22, and you're going to see that 
uh, the instructions will start within the Holy of Holies, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, and kind of move outward from there. But because it's the most important item within the, the tabernacle, I want to talk about it last. So I'm going to kind of switch up the passage this morning. We're going to look at the table for bread first. Then we're going to look at the golden lampstand. And finally, we're going to end with the Ark of the Covenant. And I'm going to spend most of our time this morning on the Ark of the Covenant. We'll move through the first two portions pretty quickly. So really, there's three points or three parts of the sermon this morning. You have the table for bread, the golden lampstand, and the Ark of the Covenant. So let's start with the table for bread. This was within the holy place. Remember, for the tabernacle, there was three main parts. It's pretty simple. You had the outer court. Right, where all the Israelites were invited to come in, the outer court. Within the outer court, you had a tent, and the tent uh, had two parts. You had the holy place, which is where only the, the priests were allowed to be, and then on the far end of the holy place, you had the holy of holies, which is the smallest room. It, it was only, uh, only the high priest was allowed to go in there once a year. So you had the outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. The table for bread, or the table of bread, was found in the holy place, where only the priests were allowed to enter. So if you would look at verse 23, we'll start there, verse 23. It says this, You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. Now a cubit uh, is the distance between a man's elbow and his fingertip. That was the way, one of the ways they would measure. Um, there's a little... Uh, differences of what exactly, how long this, exactly this was, but it was probably about 18 inches long, meaning two cubits was not that big. This wasn't a huge table. In fact, if you think about it, it, it was a pretty small table. Now, we're going to see that the construction of the tabernacle was never meant to be overwhelming, right? like pagan temples or some of our modern massive structures today. It was never meant to be overwhelming when you came to it and saw it. Instead, what's important about the tabernacle was its symbolism. What, what each item pointed to and taught the Israelites. What, what it taught the Israelites, what it pointed forward to, pointed back to, what it, what it was teaching the Israelites. So the symbolism is what was important about the items in the tabernacle itself. Uh, look at verse 24. You shall overlay it, that's the table, you shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a hand breadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners of its four legs. Close, uh, to, the, uh, close to the frame, the rings shall lie as holders for the people to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. Now remember, the tabernacle is, is a kind of like a portable temple. The Israelites are living in the wilderness. They're not settled in the promised land. They're going to be wandering in the wilderness as Noahic uh, uh, people moving around. Um, and so the tabernacle, their temple, is, is portable. Uh, again, like a portable temple, meaning its furniture within the tabernacle had, had to be portable. Uh, therefore, God instructed rings to be fastened on the sides of the table and poles to be put through the rings, and the Israelites were to carry the table with these poles. In other words, they weren't to touch the table. They were to carry the table with the, the poles that were through the rings and the rings fastened to the table. Look at verse 29. It says this, And you shall make its plates and dishes for instance, and its uh, flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings, you shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the bread of presence on the table before me regularly. Now, most of the instructions of what we just read given by God for the table were not necessarily symbolic. They were more functional. How to set the table, how to carry the table is all very functional. This was true for everything but the bread. Again, look at verse 30. It says this, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. This was symbolic, this bread on the table. It was symbolic. Now, unlike pagan gods, the bread wasn't for God to eat. Pagans, and, and still in parts of the world, pagans do this today. They, they'll set up idols, and they will put 
food in front of the idols to feed the idols, to feed their gods to make them happy. But Yahweh doesn't need to be fed. In fact, Psalm 50, 12 says this, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. God didn't need food. The bread wasn't to feed God. Instead, it was symbolic of Israel themselves. Listen to Leviticus 5, or 24, verse 5. This is talking about the bread. It, sa- it says this, You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it, uh, two-tenths of an ephah uh, shall be um, in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord, meaning two piles of six, that's 12. Right? The bread represented the 12 tribes of Israel. Therefore, the bread was symbolic of two things about Israel, concerning Israel. First, it was symbolic of Israel's fellowship. Again, remember the sermon when we got to Exodus 24, we saw Aaron, his sons, and 70 elders. They went halfway up the mountain, Exodus 24. They went halfway up Mount Sinai, and they ate and drank with God. They had fellowship with God. The priests would enter into the holy place and eat bread, eat this bread from the table in the presence of God as a sign of fellowship. They were Israel's representatives. They represented Israel as they would fellowship with God eating this bread. It's almost like God invited the priests into his house to eat at his table in his presence in fellowship. In fact, as I was studying it, this portion of scripture this week, it just reminded me of Psalm 23. Psalm 23, verse 5 says this, You have prepared a table before me. In the presence of my enemy, you anoint my head with oil. I've said this a number of times in, in this culture. When a guest would come into your house, you would anoint that person with oil before you would fellowship with them and, and serve them and, and host them. You, would, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. There's an abundance Surely good, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's fellowship. That's what, what David is pointing to. It's in God's tent, in God's house. So the table and bread really symbolize fellowship. Fellowship between God and Israel. Really between God and man. Again, this points us back to the garden where Adam and Eve had fellowship with God. It was disrupted by sin, and we're seeing a recreation of the garden in the tabernacle. But it wasn't just fellowship that this symbolized. It also symbolized provision. Remember Exodus 25, verse 30. It says this, You shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly, always, consistently. There's always to be bread on this table at all times. In other words, the old bread was to be eaten and replaced by fresh bread. There was always to be bread on this table. Now, for us, that might not seem like that big of a deal because most of us always have, have fresh bread at hand at home, and if we don't, we can just go to the grocery store and get some, or in fact, you can just go to the gas station and get some. But in antiquity, to have bread always, to have the ability to put bread on this table always, is a big deal. It's like a promise. The bread on the table was a a symbol of provision for Israel. Meaning, the twelve loaves symbolized that the twelve tribes of Israel would would be under the care and provision of God regularly, always, continuously. And this is really important, especially when you think about the 40 years of Israel wandering in the wilderness. 40 years of being homeless, not having a land to, to grow wheat, to make bread out of it. That, uh, that the dependence on God during that time, how God provided manna from heaven, bread from heaven for the Israelites. And this is what this bread symbolized, that God would provide for Israel in this covenant that he is in with them. Meaning the bread symbolized both fellowship and provision. But as we're going to see the tabernacle, it also pointed Israel forward. It pointed Israel forward to the true bread, it pointed Israel forward to Jesus. If you would, turn to John chapter 6, verse 31, and we're going to be back and forth between Exodus and the Gospel of John. We, we saw in 
uh, the Christmas sermon that I, that I preached that, um, that there's this connection between, I believe, Exodus and, and John in his writings, inspired by God. Obviously, this is coming from God. Uh, we saw that when, when Jesus came and tabernacled, he, he became flesh and dwelt, and that word dwelt means tabernacled. He tabernacled with us. And so there's this connection between the tabernacle and Jesus that we're going to see over and over and over again in the Gospel of John. So just put a bookmarker there in Exodus and then John. We're going to go back and forth. Look at John chapter 6, verse 31. It says this. Right, this is the Israelites talking to Jesus. Our father ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Right, Bread from heaven. God provided bread from heaven. He provided manna for the Israelites to eat in the wilderness. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. In other words, the true and better bread. Verse 33, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives his life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always, regularly, like, all the time, always. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Again, I am. This is one of the I am statements that we see throughout the book of John. I am, again, pointing back to Exodus related to the name of God. Jesus is making a bold claim here. I am the bread of life. The bread on the table, the manna in the wilderness from heaven, it all pointed forward to the true bread of life, Jesus. Again, verse 35 says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. This is what the table and the bread pointed to. It pointed forward to the fellowship and provision provided in Jesus in a relationship with him and God. So we're going to turn back to Exodus 25 again. We'll be back in John, so keep a bookmarker there. The first item was the, the table of bread. The second item that we're going to look at is the golden lampstand. Just like the table of bread, the golden lampstand um, was found in the holy place. Again, you have the outer court, the holy place, and then the holy of holies, or the most holy place. The golden lampstand is found in the holy place with the, the table of bread. Look at verse 31. It says this, you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. Now, out of all the furniture in the, uh, the tabernacle, it's probably easiest for us to picture because most of us are familiar with a Jewish menorah, right? The candle that, that Jewish people would light. Uh, that's what this is. It's a model of this. Again, verse 31 says this, You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. Listen to its description, though. The lampstand shall shall be made of hammered work, its base, its stems, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it, meaning that there are seven branches altogether, three out of one side, three out of the other side, and one in the middle. Seven branches. In fact, there's six branches coming out at the outside, and one in the middle, meaning six and one. What's this point to? Seven days of creation. Right? Six days of creation, one day of resting. This is pointing us back to the garden. Again, we're going to see over and over and over again a connection from the tabernacle to the garden. This is a recreation of the garden. I mean, just think about the imagery God's using about this, this candle or this lampstand, right? We have branches, stem, flowers, calyxes. Okay, I had to look this up. What, what's a calyx? Calyx is the, the outside of a budding flower, what protects the flower as it's getting ready to bloom. What's this lampstand a model of? It's a model of a tree. It has branches. It has flowers. It's a flowering tree. With seven branches, and you think of a menorah, seven branches that are growing upwards. What's this look like? It looks like a tree. You think of the menorah. Once again, this is the garden. Seven branches, seven days of creation, tree imagery, 
points to the tree of life. The lampstand was a reminder, it was a metaphor that God is the source of life. In Genesis, he gave life to creation. He spoke life into existence. He gave life to Adam and Eve, and then he gave them the tree of life. God is the source of life. This is what the lampstand pointed back to. Again, look at verse 33. It says this. Three cups made like almond blossoms. This is an almond tree. Each with calyx and flower and one branch. And three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand, meaning each branch had three sets of blossoming flowers as it's going up and growing outward, indicating that this was not only a tree, but a healthy tree, a tree that's blossoming and flowering. I mean, it has three different uh, flowers growing on each different branch. And this also points to springtime. That's when the the trees would blossom. It's not only a symbol of life, but it's really a symbol of new life, growing life, healthy life, abundant life. Verse 34, and on the lampstand itself shall be four cups made like almond blossoms and their calyxes and flowers and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it. The, the whole of it, a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. Verse 37, you shall make seven lamps for it. The lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Now, what's the main purpose of a lampstand? It's to give light, right? That's exactly what this did. It was the source of light. In fact, for the holy place, it's the only source of light because if if it wasn't for the lampstand, there'd be complete darkness as we'll find out about the curtains and how thick and, and how much it would block out the outside light. For, for the holy place and the, the tabernacle, right, this lampstand was the source of light. Again, what does this sound like? Creation. God was not only the source of life, but also he was the source of light. Let me just read Genesis 1.1. It says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. And verse 3 says this, And God said, Let there be light. He spoke light into existence, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. God is the source of light. In fact, God doesn't make the sun for another few days. The sun isn't the source of light. I think he waited to make the sun for a few days to make it very clear that he is the source of light. The Bible is really clear on this. Psalm 27 verse 1 says this, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? 1 John 1 5 says this, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. The lampstand, in other words, teaches us that, that God is the source of both life and light. Again, this was to point us back to the garden where God spoke right, both light and life into existence. Look at verse 38. It says this, Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. That's the instruments that would be used to uh, keep this lampstand lit. It should be made of pure gold. Verse 39, it shall be made with all these utensils and out of, the, or out of a talent of pure gold. And see, see that you make them after the pattern from them, which is being shown you on the mountain. Right, so God is showing him how to make this, giving him instructions on how to make this, how to make this lampstand. It would be in the holy place with the table and bread. Now, before we move on to the Ark of the Covenant, let me just look at verse 37 one more time, because this is important. Verse 37 says this, You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamp shall be set up so to give light on the space in front of it. Let me ask the question, what was in front of it? 
Well, at this point, we only know one other item of furniture in the holy place, the table of bread, meaning, think of the symbolism, the lampstand was symbolizing life and light, and it continuously shone its light on the 12 pieces of bread which represented Israel. Meaning God is the light and life and he continuously shines on his people Israel, both. The golden land standard was a reminder to the Israelites that God is the source of both light and life for his people. And guess what? This also pointed the Israelites forward to Jesus. Turn back to John, John chapter 1. Again, I just recently preached on this. John chapter 1, verse 1. The more I study Exodus, the more I'm convinced that John had the book of Exodus just stuck in his mind as he was writing. As he understood Jesus' words, as Jesus connected Exodus to his life. John 1, 1 says this, in the beginning, what's that? Talked about that. If I just said those three words, you automatically think Genesis. In the beginning, it's creation. In the beginning was the word, and we talked about this too. It it should be God. In the beginning, God. But John radically puts the word, which is Jesus, in the place of God, because he is God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 4 says this, In him, this is Jesus, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Did you hear that? Just like creation, where God spoke both light and life into existence, but just like the tabernacle. And we know John's thinking about the tabernacle because in verse 14 he will say that he dwelt, he tabernacled with us. Just like the tabernacle, Jesus is both the source of life and light, the lampstand. Again, Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. So what happened in creation? God spoke light into existence and it shined in the darkness, but also this is what happened in the tabernacle. The lampstand was lit and it shone in the darkness. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is both the light and the life. And John just makes this clear. He is the light. Verse 9 says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus, he was coming into the world. John 9, 5 says this, as long as I'm in the world, this is Jesus speaking, he says this, I am the light. I am, referring to God's name, I am the light of the world. But he's also the life. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 5.21, the son gives life to whom he wills. John 6.40, for this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. John 10, 28 says, Jesus said to her, I am, there's that I am statement again, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus is the source of both light and life. And this is what the golden lampstand symbolizes. It pointed Israel forward to Jesus. This brings us to the last item I want to talk about this morning. In chapters 25, we looked at the lampstand, we looked at the the, uh, table. Both of these are in the the holy place. Now I want to look at the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is in the most holy place, or the holy of holies. It's the smallest room within the tabernacle. It's within the courtyard, within the holy place. You have the holy of holies, the most holy place. 
And that's where the Ark of the Covenant is. And it's the most important item in the entire tabernacle. So if you would, look at Exodus 25. Go back to Exodus 25, verse 10. Exodus 25, verse 10. It says this. You shall make an ark of acacia wood. Now the word ark is actually an old English word. It's a word we don't use uh, anymore in modern English. It's an old English word. It just means like chest or box. Think of a, a chest or a box of some sort. Um, ark's a good translation if you understand that word. Chest would be a good translation of the Hebrew word. Now, it's not related to Noah's ark. It's the same English word we use for Noah ark, Noah's ark and the ark of the covenant, but they're two different Hebrew words that are used for the two, those two things. Um, Noah's ark was a, a box shaped. That's why it gets the name of an ark. If you think of the ark, right? it was box shaped. And, uh, but that's probably the only relation that you have from Noah's ark to the ark of the covenant. The ark of the covenant was a unique thing. Again, most important item within the tabernacle. Look at verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. Again, a cubit is about 18 inches long. Most likely it's right around there. Meaning, this was about three and a half feet long by two and a quarter feet wide and high. It's a rectangular chest. And it's really not that big. Think about it. I just think that's interesting. Especially if you think of its importance, as we'll see. The significance of, of the Ark of the Covenant, it, it's really not that big. What matters is the symbolism. So let's keep going. Verse 11. You shall overlay it with pure gold. So it's a wooden box overlaid with pure gold. Pure gold meaning the, the most... Uh, uh, costly gold, gold without any imperfections at all. Verse 11, inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make um, on it a, a molding of gold around it, meaning the whole box was covered in gold. Verse 12, you should cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its feet, two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. So I just want you to picture a chest that's made out of gold with rings fastened to the side of it. Verse 13, you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings of the side of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. Again, this is how they were to carry the ark, the Israelites, with long poles that were inserted to these rings that were fastened to the side of the ark. Now, this is important because no human was allowed to touch the ark. For a very simple reason, if you touch it, you would die. We see this happen uh, later on in, in um, the Old Testament, but I just want you to remember this, that, that this, this chest, this ark, was in the Holy of Holies, which is where God's presence was to be found, in the Holy of Holies, and the ark itself was holy. Meaning, no sinful man could touch the ark and live. Because we are unholy. We are sinful. We are rebellious. Therefore, God, I believe by his grace, designed the ark with poles permanently attached to it to move the ark. The priests would put these poles on their shoulders, or they were supposed to put their poles on their shoulders, and that's how they would carry the ark without touching it. And look at verse 15. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. And these are the stone tablets that Moses will have coming down from the mountain, right, with the Ten Commandments written on these stone tablets. They were to be put in the chest, right, in this ark, which represented the covenant. It's like the vows that were made in the covenant. It's like, again, if you relate this to a marriage covenant or ceremony, it would be like taking the vows that were made at the marriage ceremony right, and putting them in this chest. The Ten Commandments represented the law. It was the vows to obey the law that we find in Exodus 24, the Israelites saying, we will obey. 
Now, this is important. What's in the chest is important because it pointed to the covenant obligations that the Israelites committed to obey and follow. So let's keep that in the back of our mind. Let's talk about the lid of this chest. Remember, this is like a chest, and it's going to have a lid on top of the chest. Look at verse 17. It says this, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. Again, this is the lid to the ark, right, this chest. The term mercy seat actually is kind of a misleading term. It's not a seat like a chair or a throne. And that's not what it means by seat. The word seat means more like location. Right? In other words, mercy is located here, or mercy is seated here on top of the ark, the lid of the ark. Right? Therefore, a better translation, I believe, would be atonement cover. We'll see that God doesn't sit on top of the ark. That's not his throne or seat. In fact, his throne's above the ark of the covenant. The, the mercy seat is where mercy is seated, right? That's the location of mercy, the lid of this ark. We'll come back to this, but for now, let's look at what's on top of the cover and lid. Look at verse 18, it says this, You shall make two cherubim, which are angels, two cherubim of gold. Hammer work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat, or atonement cover, the lid of the ark. And you think it's a rectangular ark, and there will be angels, right, statues of angels made out of gold, two small statues of cherubim on the ends of this rectangle or lid on top of the ark. Now let me ask a question before we move on. When was the last time we heard about cherubim? In the garden. Again, there's a connection between the garden and the tabernacle. The first time we ever heard the word cherubim is in the garden. The, the next time is Exodus 25. There's a connection. There's a, this is a recreation of the garden. In fact, if you would just listen to, to Genesis 3, verse 22, it says this. This is after the fall. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground which he has taken. He drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden and placed the cherubim and a flaming sword and turned away and turned, um, turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, we don't have a lot of information about cherubim. The Bible doesn't go into detail about them. There's a lot of mystery about angels in general, but the cherubim particularly, they're angels for sure. They're not the cute, cuddly type of angels, by the way, um, like little chubby, fat babies with wings. It's not these cherubim. In fact, in Ezekiel 1, the description of them, they're like massive, glorious beings. And unlike the other angels, it seems like that they had a particular job that was different from the other angels. It seems like they, they stay with the presence of God with the purpose of denying access to anything unholy. They were to guard the, the holiness of God almost. In other words, they, they would guard the, the holy presence of God. And they were connected to God's throne. Psalm 99 verse 1 says this, The Lord reigns, let the the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. Psalm 80 verse 1 says this, You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Second Kings 19.15 says this, And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth you have made heaven and earth. Therefore, God's throne is above the cherubim. Now, listen to, look at Exodus 25, verse 19. And look at the description of the cherubim. Make one cherub on one end, right, of the cover, and one cherub on the other end of one piece with the mercy seat, that's the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. 
So I just want you to picture this. You have one angel standing on one end, and you have one angel standing on the other end of this lid, this cover, this mercy seat that's on top of the ark. Verse 20, the cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces, uh, one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall their faces of the cherubim be. In other words, these angels will overshadow the lid facing downward. Why? Because the throne of God is above them. And they're bowing down in reverence. Verse 21, and you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. Again, this is the lid. And in the ark you shall put the testimonies that I shall give you. That's the stone tablets. There, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat. Now remember, God's throne is above the mercy seat. It's above the cherubim above the ark and that's where God will meet with Israel because that's where mercy is found at the mercy seat again verse 22 there I will meet with you and from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony I will speak with you about all that I give you in commandment for the people of Israel. This will become just like the top of Mount Sinai where where Moses will go up to speak with God and come back with instructions and commandments from God. This Holy of Holies will become the new Mount Sinai where Moses will go and get instructions and meet with God. This is where God meets with his people in the Holy of Holies but particularly at the mercy seat. Now, Before we finish today with all these details and our heads are wandering with all these details of the the furniture within the tabernacle, I want to talk about the mercy seat a little bit more. Because the mercy seat is extremely important. The ark is extremely important. The holy holy is extremely important. The tabernacle is extremely important. But the mercy seat is extremely important. And again, don't think chair or throne. God's enthroned above the mercy seat. Think seat as mercy is seated here, the location of mercy. Therefore, where is the location of mercy? Just think about it. In between a holy God and a broken covenant. Remember, the description of the ark. You had the stone tablets that represented the law that were placed into the ark, this chest. Above the ark, you have the holy presence of God, his holy throne, meaning between God and this law that has been broken, you have what's called the mercy seat or atonement cover. When Israel broke the law, it was the mercy seat that brought reconciliation, atonement, the forgiveness of sins. In Leviticus 16, once a year, the priest would enter the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood from a sacrifice on the mercy seat. Meaning, the ark's cover was used to make atonement for Israel's sins. Let me just read to you Leviticus 16, 15. It says this, You shall, or then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil. That's the Holy of Holies. This is the high priest is to kill the sacrifice, bring its blood inside to the Holy of Holies, and do with its blood as he did with the, the blood of the bull. Sprinkle it over the mercy seat, or atonement cover, with the lid of the ark, and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. Because of their transgression, all their sins. In other words, every year, the priest would sacrifice an animal, a goat, take its blood, bring it into the Holy of Holies, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Therefore, it was the blood of the sacrifice that brought atonement, reconciliation. Reconciliation between God and Israel. And the mercy seat is the location of where this happened. Let me just read to you one commentator. He said this, There is no mercy 
unless there is blood on the mercy seat. God is above, enthroned in majesty. We are down below, breaking his law. If we are to be saved, something has to come between his perfect holiness and our unholy sin, namely the blood of a sacrifice acceptable to God. Now, remember the ark, right? The law is in the ark. God's a throne above the ark. And between God and the law, we have the mercy seat. Guess what? The mercy seat pointed Israel straight to Jesus. Jesus is our mercy seat. Jesus is where mercy is located, is found. It's where reconciliation, atonement is found. It's through the blood of Jesus that we find forgiveness of sins. He is our atoning sacrifice that brings reconciliation between a holy God and a sinful people. Jesus is our mercy seat. Listen to Hebrews 9.11. It says this, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, right, not the tabernacle, but the greater tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all the holy place, not by means of blood of goats and calves, like the Day of Atonement, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus came, in other words, in between a holy God and us. Just like the lid of the ark. And it's through his blood that we find atonement. It's through his blood that we find reconciliation between us and God. Jesus is our mercy seat. And once again, John understood this and points us, points this, points us to this reality. Look at Exodus 25, verse 18, real quick. It says this, And you shall make two cherubim, right? Two angels of gold, of hammered work, shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Two angels on the two ends of the mercy seat. just want you to picture that. Verse 19. Make one cherubim on one end and one cherubim on the other end. Now turn to John chapter 20, verse 11. This is after Jesus' death. This is after his resurrection. Verse 11 says this, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Just picture that, a small room. And she saw what? Two angels. What's that sound like? A small room with two angels. And she stooped to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white standing there where the body of Jesus had laid, one at the head and one at the feet. Jesus is our mercy seat. He stands between a holy God and a sinful people. He is where the location is of mercy. It's the location where we meet with God reconciled relationship. It's only through Jesus that we can have a relationship with God. You know, this weekend I had an opportunity to share the gospel with a, an ex-hippie or someone that maybe still is a hippie but just older. Um, I was getting my car serviced and uh, his car, he was driving through Tehachapi to get to the Bay Area and uh, he broke down in Tehachapi of all places, and um, we got in a pretty good conversation, but he found out I was a pastor, and that's just a perfect lead into the gospel presentation, because like, what do you do? I'm like, well, let me t share with you what I do. <laughs> so he shared the gospel with him, and he kind of came back. He's like, hey, I, I more believe in Eastern religions that you know, all, all roads lead to God. I'm, I'm really fond of Christianity. It's just one, one good way to God, but there's many different ways to God. Listen, it's not what Scripture teaches. In fact, either scripture is wrong and that guy or that belief is right, or that belief is wrong and scripture is right, but they can't both be right. That's not what scripture teaches. There's only one place where mercy is found. 
There's only one place to, to meet with God and find reconciliation. There's only one road to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. Jesus, in fact, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, and no one meets with the Father except through me. Let me end just with a quote from Stephen Nichols. He's the president of Reform Bible College. This is what he says. The mercy seat of the Old Testament and the blood sprinkled upon it by the high priest prefigured Christ to come. Christ did come, and Christ did make the sacrifice, and Christ was raised from the dead. Make no mistakes about it. These are historical realities. The tabernacle was real. The Ark of the Covenant was real. The mercy seat was real. The cross was real. The empty tomb was real was real, and a real woman stooped to look into a real tomb and saw two real angels. Christ is our mercy seat. It's there in Christ and through Christ. It's there. It's the location. That's the location. It's there and only there that God meets us. Dear God, Lord, our Father in heaven, Lord, we come humbly this morning, Lord, as we approach this text, as we see how detailed you are in worship of you, Lord, how important these details are in teaching the Israelites and pointing them forward to your Son, Lord. God, I thank you, Lord, that we can be awed as we look back in the Old Testament and just see how perfectly it connects to the new, how perfectly it points us forward to your son. More important than that, Lord, I thank you for the mercy seat. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that we can approach you, we can meet with you because of the work he has done on the cross, saving us from our sins, Lord, saving us from the wrath that we deserve. God, I pray, Lord, that we humbly approach you, Lord, knowing that it's only through Christ, Lord. I pray if there's anyone that doesn't know you that's listening right now, Lord, online in this room, Lord, that they understand there's only one way to you. There's only one way to life. There's only one way to light. That's through your Son and belief in him that he came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for their sins. That whoever believes in him will be saved. He was raised on the third day, promising us life pray that they would put their faith in him. In your son's name, amen.